Welcome to the latest edition of Access All Areas with Dermot and Felicity. I'm My Way Access, Dermot Deflam, and with me always is the chronically fabulous Felicity McKee. You're too kind, Dermot. Um, we're so glad to have everybody back again this week, and we were very pleased to see the reaction to the podcast last week. I think it was a really good start to what we're hoping to do, and um, we hope you stay with us. This week, we are going to be exploring the Purple Pound and the finances of being a disabled person and what that entails. So Felicity, we've been looking through some of the news items this week so we feel it may be a good idea to discuss with our listeners. Is there anything that's caught your eye that you feel would be a good thing to talk about? So I think for me personally, just as someone who is shielding, uh, the Eat Out to Help Out scheme is one that has been really, really interesting. Um, if only because it's not something that you can access for, uh, to take away. So you have to literally dine in the venue to access this. And I was noticing that there's a, a national food scheme and they get, I think, 15 pounds, which is expected to cover the meals, uh, say for a child or for a person for an entire week. And yet this scheme is able to provide 10 pounds up to £10 for individuals who are able to dine out. And as a disabled person who's shielding, I can't dine out uh, and I cannot access this scheme. It doesn't have an element for that. It is encouraging me to go out into a venue where I'm having to rely on other people, social distancing and adhering to guidelines. And that is quite concerning. And it's one of the, the small and perhaps you could argue subtle ways in which at times it feels like the government has forgotten people who are shielding and has forgotten disabled people more generally. Um, this is something that if they are hoping that could help the economy and especially local businesses and things like this, that they should have thought about all the people who may have wanted to access this. Um, and th the fact that you have to dine in is quite limiting unfortunately. I totally agree because I've been sort of following the story for quite a while and it, it does seem to have an element of ableism about it, maybe not a, a conscious level but it certainly it, it just sort of empathizes that when it comes to disabled people we seem to drop down to the bottom of the packing order again when it comes to thinking about the services that are available for us including all sorts of schemes now with COVID because, you know, in the past um, it wasn't financially possible, finances weren't available to uh, provide the budget to help sort of people in poverty, which a large number of uh, disabled people are. Yet now that the, the, this 50% is available for anybody that comes under town with no registration, no identification, no sort of thing for them to fill out, you just walk in already with your want and walk out again. Um, I just think that there just seems to be something a little unjust there. Uh, I don't know how you feel about that yourself, Felicity. I just, I think it's kind of um, ironic in the fact that like so many people have been furloughed or struggling with finances anyway. And even with the discount of up to £10, it isn't something that is accessible to everyone. So like, it's not a simple case of me just saying that this system and scheme is inaccessible to many disabled people especially those who are shielding and even with shielding coming to an end those who wish to or well basically in my case will most likely remain shielding because obviously we haven't got to an area where things are as they used to be but there's still families in poverty for whom this scheme isn't accessible 
even then. And it just seems really ironic that the government can provide £10 or up to £10 for these big businesses um, and, and not provide support for other people, especially those who are in poverty. So, um, you know, a lot of food banks have been raising the issue of the fact that like they have seen a rise in their, in their use because of lockdown and because of furlough. And um, there's actually a campaign in which people can pass on their 50% discount in restaurants to help fight uh, food poverty. And it's sort of encouraging people to actually donate when they go out and do that. It's via the big issue and, and other organizations. But it, it is, it's literally just, I think, the fact that clearly there is money there. As we're going to be discussing later in this podcast, there are so many disabled people in poverty and just so many people in poverty generally. It makes you wonder sometimes just where the priorities of the government are. Oh, I can totally understand because um, you raised an interesting point there in the last wee bit there. You were talking about the food bank, especially since COVID, that they have, the numbers uh, have uh, significantly. But that, this figure has sort of been growing for the last five or six years. Uh, politicians might not saying that uh, the number of food banks is, is actually a good sign of the economy that these are there, that people want to help. But they're the using that as a get-out club to actually provide um, help and support for people that actually need it who are in poverty. Um, it just, it's, so it's kind of a, a smack on the face, you know, that um, when it's uh, people that are, for want of a better expression, maybe not in poverty, who are non-disabled, who don't come from a public background, or been affected by it, then certainly the finances is available. Yeah, so like, for example, the government is going to spend 500 million on the Eat Out to Help Out scheme. And yet when it came to the campaign to fund free school meals over the summer holidays, that was only going to cost 120 million. And they had to be shamed into making a U-turn to agree to that. And that's a lot less money. And that's helping directly people in poverty. It's just quite, it's quite drastic when you look at the actual costs um, and the fact that this money does exist and that poverty doesn't necessarily need to be there because the government does have this money. And yeah, it, and also from the perspective of people who are already struggling, um, you know, with poverty and, and with food poverty specifically and struggling to, to buy and afford food, the campaign as well when it comes to obesity is also very difficult because obesity does tend to affect people who are in lower socioeconomic backgrounds because they cannot afford the so-called healthier food or the fresh food. Um, you know, as a disabled person myself, I can't always have fresh food in the house because I'm not well enough to prepare it or have the energy to, to, to manage that. Like if I was to buy it, one, it's more expensive and two, it would probably go off before I got time to, to actually make it into something that I could eat. Um, and so it does mean I have to rely more on like ready meals and pre-made food. A lot of the campaigning, such as the anti-obesity campaigning and the eat out to help out, seems to be ignoring wider socioeconomic issues. Um, some of the other news I was talking about this week is across the UK, this is Shop Local Week, where it's encouraging um, people in the local community to get back out into town, you know, now the children have been lifted, and to go to the local groceries, go to the local cafes, go to the local bars and restaurants, you know, try to promote, uh, try to get the, the local economy stimulated again, uh, because they've, they've had a, a tough time. But I feel that um, it's not quite right yet, because a lot of our towns are maybe just not 
quite a quick gap for a disabled visitor who's coming in to do the local shop, you know, because they're bringing in a lot of new schemes now, um, as you say, because of COVID and uh, social distancing. You know, a lot of these shops now are bringing some of the retail out on the streets, particularly cafes and restaurants, where they're bringing tables and chairs out. And I've seen evidence as well, you know, admittedly through Facebook and Instagram, where people are bringing sofas out onto the streets. And worse than that, they're actually taking up disabled parking bays. So if a disabled person feels that they're comfortable enough to come out and maybe mix a little bit, you know, maybe at a reduced social distance, but albeit a social distance all the same, then their parking space has been taken away from them. That's definitely something that I've seen, um, especially when it comes to like people uh, creating queues in the front of like supermarkets. And again, my, my, um, experience of this has been online as I've been shielding, but um, I've seen photographs of disabled bays being used to extend queues and, and just similar issues to that. And it's, it's the fact that it feels very much like we are an afterthought, because if you think about it, there are far more non-disabled parking bays than there are disabled parking bays, and there's not enough disabled parking bays to begin with, for the amount of disabled people there actually are. Yes, you say that. I mean, you're saying that we're an afterthought, but in some cases, we're not even a thought. And I think that this is why it's important that, you know, especially in this new climate, they say, when they're bringing in these new social distancing rules, you know, that they can bring out street furniture onto spaces, public spaces, that disabled people need to be involved in the conversation, you know, because ultimately we're going to be the ones that are affected the most and we're not just talking maybe people that are physically disabled but then you have sort of other issues as well you know whether they uh, learning disabilities or mental health disabilities where they don't feel maybe as safe you know serving and navigating so many people especially when they're um, invading what they believe is their uh, comfortable route. Yeah I, th- I think people don't really take into account with this and so um as you said, with the sofas and stuff like this, that's something that I've also seen as well online. I know that you have previously run a campaign to highlight the fact that people do tend to park in the drop-down curbs and, and other areas and blocking footpaths. And when people block a footpath, they're, you know, it shouldn't be that I have to argue, well, actually, that could be uh, detrimental to a non-disabled person. So, for example, a person who happens to be pushing a pram may not be able to get past the tables or the sofa but it's an issue for people who have mobility aids, who are in a wheelchair, people who are visually impaired, to try and have to navigate around that. It's also a social distancing issue as well. Um, and it, it just creates all these unnecessary obstacles which don't need to be there. A lot of the time I find that sometimes it's sad, but sometimes I have to say, well, this is an issue for a non-disabled person as well before it gets taken seriously. Yeah. And that's just really depressing because we are people too. So I think that really copies everything in the local news now. So what we'll do now is we'll take a little break and we will head over for our main discussion this week, the Purple Pound um, Disabled Finances. So we'll see you after this short break. The main theme of this week's podcast is obviously the proper pound and the finances of disabled people and sort of discussion in and around that, which you may have picked up on on our initial discussion about shopping local and other things at the start of the podcast. 
Dermot is a slight expert, in my opinion, on issues of the Purple Pound. Would you like to introduce it to our listeners? Well, the Purple Pound is coined from the field that the, the colour for disabled people and disabled issues uh, across the, the Western world and is purple, although admittedly in the US it is blue. So when we talk about the Purple Pound, we're talking about the disabled spending pound or power. Um, now, what a lot of our listeners will probably be aware of who are disabled, but maybe the non-disabled listeners would be surprising to find out that in the UK and Irish population, that disabled people make up one-fifth of the population. That's 19.5%, which is quite, quite, quite high. So, and this is one of the things I would often tell businesses when I'm talking to them, is we make up one-fifth of the population and you're den- you could be denying us or, or custom in your business. So, as I say, if you're starting a brand new business tomorrow and you're writing a business plan, you're not going to put a big black mark or big red mark to one-fifth of the potential customers you might get. And by not having your premises accessible for disabled people, you are, by fact, doing that, cutting off potentially one-fifth of your revenue coming in that day, that week, that year. Now, a lot of businesses might argue that it's not possible to do, make some sort of alterations and to agree that that might be possible in sort of some extreme cases when it comes to sort of uh, landmark buildings and stuff like that there. But it doesn't neglect them of responsibility because there, there are sort of ways around it that people can get. For example, they can get a portable ramps and stuff like that. But in some cases, I wouldn't even go as far as saying that because of landmark buildings that it can't be done. Because I've been to Belfast City Hall on a number of occasions. Plus, have you ever been yourself? Yeah, no, I've, I've been to City Hall as well. And I've been there when they've had the Continental Market and, and other events. And... Landmark buildings or historic buildings can be made accessible. Now, some people have argued that it would ruin the aesthetic of the building, but I'm not really sure what the point of the building is if you're opening it to the public and one fifth of the public can't necessarily access the building. As you said, I mean, this is bad business practice, um, but also at, at, at a fundamental level, it is just basic discrimination. Well, as you were saying, some people might say that it could ruin the aesthetic of the building. But the reason I brought up Belfast City Hall, uh, I've been in it one time for an event for the Disability Action MA. And uh, me and my friend decided that I had to go to use the toilet facility. Um, we were just walking up the corridors and we seen these big heavy doors. And I said, how am I going to get these doors open? And they, they looked like they were doors that had been there when the building was built. But as soon as I got within several feet of them, the doors automatically opened up without the press of a button, without me pushing. And there was me thinking that this door, which was, because of what it did, would have been there maybe at the very most five or six years. But looks wide, it looked like it belonged there since the building was built. And then I stopped one of the, the staff and said, listen, I need to use the toilet. Uh, where the, the toilet facility? And they said, oh, it's downstairs, you know, the business corridor, which I hadn't been down. And I said, well, where's the lift? He said, well, that's up just in front of you. And I seen this really classy-looking little, you know, made of glass, and it looked like it belonged there all the, since the beginning, just like the door. And what actually, what that actually was, was an elevator. So it just <laughs> goes to show you that, you know, they might say that it's going to ruin the aesthetic of buildings, but it won't. Belfast City Hall, you were able to get the finances to make it possible to do this. And this is why, you see, 
that's a helicopter finance it. And I think it's an honour on the local government and the wider government to help and support, particularly the smaller businesses who, you know, maybe find it hard to make the adaptions for disabled people, that they're able to step in and provide support. You know, people might look and go, well, sure, why don't have local money to, to these businesses? You know, just so you can stick a ramp on or widen the door. But at, at least back into, um, you know, if we make it accessible, disabled people can go in, we can start spending our money, buy, you know, buy our groceries in the shop. We can go to um, the local uh, music store and get our vinyl records or, or MP3s or whatever it might be. It means that we're able to get in and get these, these things in the local shop and we're not forced to do this online. Um, so like as you were saying in regards to accessibility and maybe financial aid to assist businesses with that there is the sunflower lanyard scheme which is for hidden disabilities and it's quite accessible um, to most businesses to either get lanyards that they can hand out to customers or simple training and posters so that their uh, workers say in retail are aware of what that symbol means and are then disability aware so that shop itself then is accessible in a different way because we have talked an awful lot about ramps and and other things but again disability is so much wider than just say physical disability and so when people do say oh but it's so expensive I couldn't possibly there are ways people can start on the journey towards making their business more accessible that are a lot more financially achievable maybe in the short term because quite literally you can download a poster and information from the hidden disabilities website like with the ewan's guide um they have the red cord cards which are you can give a donation if you're a business to access them there's small ways you can bring in information on accessibility to your business that are cost effective and will also encourage and allow more disabled customers to then come in and then partake in your business. So, I mean, it makes financial sense. Well, to say right, I understand, in fact, one of the local things that has been set up in recent years, which has proved to be very successful, is the jam card. And what they do is they have a card, you know, so when people with disabilities are maybe have a, be a competence problem or a communication problem that they might need an extra few seconds, so they can display this card at the shop, or so wherever they might be, just to say, just to give us a, a few, few moments just to, gather their thoughts or to help them through the process. But as well as that, their jam will actually come into these shops that want them and train up the staff on how that whenever they do meet somebody that has a jam card, what's the right way and what the right training, what they need to be aware of. So as you say, people with disabilities do maybe, non-disabled might a lot on physical disabilities and even within the physical disabilities, they might just focus solely on wheelchair users. Um, but as you quite rightly say that um, uh, disability is a, a wide umbrella and there's a whole lot of different branches and the, which is all equally as important as each other and should all have the same focus and the same sort of help and determination and schemes and sort of help behind them to help them get in the shops and, and train. In fact, even the jam card has, has been adopted in recent years by TransLink. So that uh, whenever people get into, you know, the, the local trains or local buses, you know, the, all the bus drivers are well equipped and trained to understand and how to react and how to behave in such um, specific incidents. Um, uh, there's any if any to, to see where people display the cards and maybe are having sort of uh, difficulties and 
you know, in the circumstances that the, the bus driver and train driver are able to understand what's going on and able to provide uh, a service and help, makes them feel more relaxed and makes the place feel more inclusive and they, they can get in the train and buses in peace. Yeah, and Jamcard is something that's over in the UK as a whole. So like I have seen it when I've been on the trains. So I've taken very long train journeys in the UK and the jam card is recognized so i remember getting off at a station and they had a specific quiet room set aside for disabled customers and they did advertise the jam card in there and they recognized the jam card and the room was amazing i like i cannot speak more highly for this room i think it was uh, with virgin trains but they had um sensory elements and just other elements but also um you were able to keep track of when the trains were coming so you wouldn't miss your train and there was other support there and you could if you needed to talk to someone and, and get maybe assistance there was a, a button you could press if you needed for that it was just it was a great room overall um so like there are small things i think businesses can do to make them the premises more accessible but also to make their um their business and the atmosphere just generally a lot more friendly to disabled customers so like it's one of the things that i noticed when i went to waterstones in belfast and i don't think this has changed but if you need to go upstairs in waterstones in belfast you have to go into a separate building to take the lift because they don't have a lift in their building you have to talk to a member of staff who then takes you in to basically through a separate business beside them to get to a lift and you know they do have an option but if you don't ask you don't know that that option exists because when I first went into Waterstones, I didn't think I could get up the stairs. I didn't think there was an option. It's funny that you say that. Uh, somebody actually sent me a picture this morning uh, of uh, a lift was in a shop outside. So I mean, I've been friends we have to go up a step to get in. So some of these shops would provide a lift so that you can get into the premises. But this particular shop had a sign to say that the um, to operate the lift, come up the steps and ask the member of staff to come out and help you. And I was just thinking, what was that about? And that's a good, I know it's a laughable point, but it's sort of emphasizing, you know, as, as you said earlier, plus of the, you know, it's all well and good in having the facility there and having the equipment there and the accessibility there, but the staff need to be trained as well and what's going on. And that's just blatantly what happens when you don't train somebody about the lift. You know, keep it on so it can be used. Don't have a wheelchair user who can't get out of the wheelchair and go up steps to get out of the wheelchair and go up steps. And uh, can you get the lift on so I can go back downstairs and get in the lift to come back up again? Yeah, because like, you know, was it, I, I would be an ambulator, a wheelchair user, but I don't always have, you know, a mobility aid with me, like we small one folded up at the back of the wheelchair to then hop out to try and get someone. But like that reminds me of Starbucks near the Europa in Belfast as well. They have a wee button outside the door, which you can push to alert the barista that there is someone there who needs a ramp to get into the premises. Um, but the problem is you then have to hope that someone has noticed that you've hit the button and also is available to come out. And I remember um, I was out with friends and I was in the wheelchair and we couldn't get into Starbucks. And it got to the point where people ended up like helping like lift the chair into Starbucks because we had waited so long and people were coming past back and forth and wondering why we were just sort of waiting at the door. Um, so like some of these systems, I think they're well-intentioned, but sometimes how they're implemented doesn't work. And it's important when you see a system like that 
not working to think, how can I make this work better? Because in that case, like Starbucks nearly lost not just the custom of me as the disabled person, but that of all my friends who are with me. Yeah. Perhaps not exactly the case, but, but that way, you know, whether the, you know, training needs to be a part of the accessibility as well. And um, because without that, um, you know, we are they're going to end up losing potentially uh, 20% of their potential custom. And not only 20%, but as you say, the knock-on effect of their friends who are with them, who will decide, well, I'm not going to give them the custom anymore because of how bad they were treated or how bad the access was, which uh, you've seen yourself and I've witnessed too. Uh, so for a business survive, back then when we're living in this new world with COVID, um, people are sort of a bit scared to go out and a bit scared to go shopping unless it's essential that you, you need to make it inclusive and accessible um, but so potentially that everybody comes and that includes disabled people so they can go get, get out and save. But let's say you know yourself, you know, you know, we are twenty percent, um we we are the the purple pound. But as you know, like when it comes to the purple pound, you know, it's not a strong pound because of uh, the finances that we are in, so maybe that may be something that we could uh, expand on as well. Yeah, so obviously we are 20% of the population and we do have a huge influence when it comes to the economy with the Purple Pound, but I think one of the things people don't realise is the actual cost of being disabled. So Scope did a report and it's called the Disability Price Tag. I think it's really eye-opening I personally was unfortunately not surprised by some of their findings, but I do know that, you know, for someone maybe who hasn't seen the report or isn't aware, some of the statistics and some of the information they find out can be quite shocking. So, for example, disabled people on average are facing extra costs of up to £583 a month. Um, they're basically the equivalent to almost half of a disabled person's income. This is not including their housing costs. One in five disabled people are facing extra costs of up to a thousand pounds a month. And what I think was really interesting was the fact that on average, 100 pounds for a non-disabled person was the equivalent to just 68 pounds for a disabled person. And this isn't just disabled people um, that are being impacted by this, like families with disabled children are facing extra costs of 581 pounds a month, almost a quarter, so that's 24% of families with disabled children have extra costs that amount to over a thousand pounds a month. And, you know, as we were talking about when it came to like issues of poverty and disability, there are huge rates of poverty within the disabled community. And, you know, PIP and other benefits and things like this aren't necessarily helping with that because it can be so difficult to even access that. So um, New Policy Institute has found disabled people have the higher poverty rates than the rest of the population generally, that the poverty rates that are, they're understated by the official statistics that we get that disabled people are making up 28% of people in poverty and that a further 20% of people in poverty are living in households with a disabled person. So when you look at that as a whole, we make up nearly 50% of households that are in poverty within the UK. And that that's a scandal in and of itself, but it's really like it could be completely avoided because when we look at the government, as we were talking about with the Eat Out to Help Out scheme, there are people living in poverty who that money could help and they didn't want to do the free school 
meals, they had to be shamed into it, but they suddenly have 500 million pounds to spend on the Eat Out to Help Out scheme, where there's families who couldn't even afford to eat out in the first place, uh, especially families with disabled people. Well, from what's up to the status, I mean, uh, pretty much I agree with what you said at the very beginning. You know, I'm actually surprised, uh, actually surprised to hear just how widespread it is. It's not totally unexpected because myself as a disabled person, I do recognise, you know, the extra money that I have to spend because of my disability. So it's not a, it's not a total surprise. And, um, you know, we do have an extra financial burden or financial, financial restrictions placed upon us. Yeah, it, it's one of the things that, like, as, as a disabled person who gets PIP, I find it quite upsetting when people sort of seem to assume that PIP is some sort of, like, freebie that I'm getting. When actually it's it's going towards all these additional expenses that I face. So for example, I currently have a manual wheelchair. I struggle with my manual wheelchair because I lack some upper body strength. I would really love an electric wheelchair. I cannot afford an electric wheelchair. Even if I could afford an electric wheelchair, I then cannot afford a vehicle in which the electric wheelchair can go into. And if I spend the motability part of my PIP specifically on getting a car. When it comes round to renewal with the government, there's no guarantee that my PIP will be continued. I could lose my car and I could lose then my, basically my independence. There's a lot of these factors involved when making decisions. My mobility part goes towards the running of my car, even though my car is not ideal. And my hope is that it can go to getting an add-on onto my manual wheelchair that would actually make it electric, uh, but would mean that it's still technically manual. So what I'm thinking about is it's little, literally a little clip-on thing that goes onto the back. It has a little motor into it and it weighs about 14 pounds. So the actual wheelchair itself which is a lightweight one plus the motor would still be lighter and probably well cheaper in the long run for me because I wouldn't necessarily need to get a new car but it would still then mean that I could have an electric chair but these are the additional expenses so I think I was talking to someone recently who was buying a new vehicle and their vehicle was from 2012 so it was a wheelchair accessible vehicle and it was about 33,000 that's second hand that wasn't new. That That's was a second-hand vehicle. I had in the past looked into getting an accessible vehicle for myself because I, I still have an ambition at four years old that I want to drive. For me to get would be, as you say, second-hand. Um, because of the type of wheelchair I have, that I would have to get a van, and which would be a transit van. Again, it could be upward to maybe 35000 to in some cases, 50000 pounds. But I still have to make sure to decide to me what's more important. So I, like at the very beginning, I valued my independence. What was going to bring me my independence more? Having my own vehicle, or having my own place, or my own house to live in, which I have now. I decided to go for that. I've been living in my, my own place now for 11 years. But this is uh, house from the Northern Ireland Housing Executive. So technically it's not my own place, my own house, but because of the way disabled finances is, it's what I'm able to get. But it meant I had to give up my ambition of being uh, a driver. Uh, but I have been sort of reignited over recent years about wanting to be a driver again. But I've got the state now with meetings and everything that my hearing um, isn't equipped for that anymore. So I had to make a decision, do I want to be a driver or do I want to hear people around me? Because I can't afford to do both of them. So I've now opted for to be uh, to get new units 
that they are not from the NHS because the NHS, the United are not equipped for my needs. So that's just one example of uh, the finance restrictions that disabled people meet. But as you say, plus is a, a whole lot more uh, that are property related. Yeah. So, like for example, I'm, I mean, my manual wheelchair, which I have, it was second hand. It was three hundred pounds second hand, which is really good because it's a lightweight, active user wheelchair. Because brand new, it could be up to two thousand pounds. And that's a manual. That's not an electric wheelchair. That's manual. The thing is, when people look up wheelchairs, sometimes they'll see stuff online. They go, well, you could have got one that was like £100. But that one is one that I need someone else to be with to push me around in. It's probably not the best suited to my needs. Because like, what I would really need personally is a wheelchair that's more suited to me and more fitted to me. This is a wheelchair that I got to test and to try out and to see if it worked. And it was the best that I could afford at that point. But there's so many people who are having to fundraise uh, and do GoFundMes to get wheelchairs and to get other um, mobility aids. And that's that's the real scandal because... Even with PIP and with support and things like this, obviously, as the disability price tag report from Scope shows, there's huge additional expenses that people are facing. Um, so like with uh, taxis, for example, many taxis, they're not supposed to, but many do. If you need a wheelchair accessible taxi, they will charge you twice the fare that they would have charged. So if you phone for a taxi, and the taxi you get happens to be a wheelchair taxi, you do not have to pay more than what you would pay just your average fare. But if you specifically phone and ask for a wheelchair taxi, they will then charge you double because it is a wheelchair taxi and it's more specialist. And it's, it's just like these little hidden costs that people don't, don't consider. So um, when I'm too unwell to get to the hospital myself, for me to get from university halls to hospital is 20 pounds one way in a taxi. It costs me about 50 quid in total to go to hospital and back if I'm sick. That's um, sort of leads in as well because um, I don't know what it's like with yourself in Swansea, but here in the Pamananoma district area where I belong to, the public transport system is not equipped to, for disabled people like myself that there's just not enough wheelchair-friendly buses or disabled-friendly buses in the area. So if I wanted to make a journey, then I would have to pre-book at least uh, 24 hours in advance. Or in some cases, if I wanted to make the journey to, say, Dublin, I would have to pre-book with TransLink two weeks in advance. Yeah, that's one of the things that I've noticed when I've come home, especially because I would fly in and out of Dublin airport. And... TransLink and being disabled can sometimes be quite difficult. So Dublin Airport, uh, they used to drop off at both terminals. They now only drop off at one terminal, even if you're flying out of the other terminal, which has meant that there's many times when I have shown up and the uh, disability support services have been very confused as to why I'm in that terminal. It's been very difficult to then try and navigate my way to the other terminal and has left me quite unwell and physically pained. Um, They could drop off at the other terminals because other buses do. And I've had discussions with staff in the airport and they don't understand why TransLink don't because other bus companies can. Uh, I believe TransLink told me at one point that there was the risk that they might face fines, but then the other companies are facing fines too and can drop off their disabled customers there. So I don't know what's going on, but just 
my history of being a disabled customer with TransLink has been very hit and miss. That would um, could it lead back into the the extra financial restrictions that disabled people have because presumably when you go there and you have to go to the other um, terminal, you probably have to pay for a taxi or some service to take you over. Pretty much like myself, I actually last summer had to I went to Derry to meet a friend of mine during the summer and. I got the bus up and that was no problem, but unfortunately I wasn't able to get the bus back, you know, through to certain circumstances. Now, it meant then that I couldn't, like, say, a non-disabled person wait for the next bus. Yeah. There was no bus available for me. So I was then forced to make the 40-minute journey, which would have cost, I think it was, wouldn't even be £10 on a bus to make. I was forced to get a taxi which ended up costing me £90. See, like, it, it's things like this that people just don't understand because they're not experiencing it themselves. And it's just, it is, there are no words to describe just how scandalous that is. And, you know, in the case of TransLink with that, TransLink should be ashamed for the fact that they do not have suitable services for disabled people. And the fact that you were facing those additional costs that are completely avoidable if they had made their service accessible. You know, I, I just, the thing is, I think I've reached a point where I'm not necessarily surprised, but I'm just perpetually disappointed by businesses and some society at times. It can be really exhausting facing this repeatedly. Well, the good thing in a way with regarding TransLink, and, you know, is uh, they work with an organization called Impact, Inclusive Mobility and Transport Advisory Committee. So that's made up for people with various types of disabilities. You know, and they meet regularly with TransLink to highlight issues and to advise them on sort of future plans to make sure that it is um, accessible for people with all kinds of disabilities. But again, it's something that's a, it's still a work in progress that I'm involved on. Uh, but I have seen sort of some positive reactions, but it's like yourself, it's a very slow reaction. And it's, um, it's something that you sort of have to keep working away on. Yeah, it does make you angry that the disabled people have to get involved in these organisations and have to actively lobby through these issues. You know, financial restrictions are removed. You know, because of accessibility issues, etc. Yeah, because like for me, ninety pounds. Well, basically, that's my entire PIP benefit, pretty much up in smoke. You know, if I had had to get that taxi, that's that is a lot of money. See, I feel like Translink should really have a scheme in place that if they cannot provide a suitable alternative for you to get your journey home, they will cover the cost, say, for like that taxi. But Chrissy, I think we've covered all on the main topic today, unless there's anything you wanted to round off before we move on with the rest of the podcast. I think the one thing I would want people to take away from this is just a greater appreciation of the hidden costs of being disabled. I know the scope report can be quite shocking and quite jarring for some people who don't have the lived experience of facing these additional costs, but just it's food for thought. And it would be nice if maybe some people listening heard that, then explored ways in which they could become activists to challenge this. Maybe even asking TransLink to create that fund so that people don't have to pay out for a taxi. I would definitely give you the ability because, you know, the, the greater people that have appreciation or a little insight or under, understanding what we in the disabled community go through. Because unfortunately, the perception is we're getting free money for nothing. 
And unfortunately, that's just not the case. Well, I mean, if someone wanted to live with my chronic pain in return for the benefits, with I, I might swap. They can try it for a day and see if it's worth it, because I, I, I don't think it's worth it. I'll have to get out my quantum leap accelerator and let them have a go. So we that think that covers now for the main talking points. So we're going to take a little break and we'll just come back for a little roundup of our lives and what's happening. So we'll see you on the other side. And welcome back. Uh, that was a great discussion we had earlier on there, Philosophy. Uh, so now I think just before we, we leave now in the next 10 or 15 minutes, we'll just find out uh, what's going on and each other's lives. Um, I believe I was reading on uh, what the other night that uh, the university you belong to, uh, Swansea University, one of their campuses, uh, Bay Campus, uh, caught on fire. Is that right? And I... No, so I uh in off-campus accommodation. So thankfully, um, it didn't impact me directly. It has impacted some of my friends' uh, work and are mainly based on Bay Campus because the building that caught on fire was the engineering building. So Bay Campus is an extension of Swansea University that was recently built. It costs about 450 million. Building itself, three floors have been destroyed by the fire and there was millions of pounds worth of equipment in there. So like it is quite devastating when you consider the fact that the university was opening up again in September and we have students coming back who were hoping to use these facilities, obviously with social distancing in place because it's going to be a mix of face-to-face teaching and online. But just generally, it's, it's a huge loss to the university. And I'm not really sure what's what's going to happen there. Um, like it, it just It's one of those things that you don't expect it to happen. It was quite sudden. It happened about six o'clock in the evening. And the smoke from the fire could be seen all over Swansea. A big fire and not obviously, you know, done such a, a huge financial damage to the building and stuff like that. But the fact that it was seen all over the city, it just gives you a visual impact of just how devastating it was, not just to obviously Swansea University, but to the Yeah, well, thankfully, there was no um, staff or students in the building. So obviously, nobody's been hurt. And I think that's the only saving grace in this entire situation. But it is it is huge impact to the university. And I no words to describe um, the sorrow I feel for other students whose research has been destroyed or has been impacted by this fire, Uh, especially the fact that, you know, sometimes they've left their offices during the lockdown, and there's equipment or other things there. So like, I left my space on the other campus during lockdown and if something was to happen there is stuff there that I wasn't able to take with me at the time that if something was to happen like this would be absolutely devastating to my work so like it's been it's been a difficult week as a, a Swansea University student and I think it's been a difficult week for anybody associated with the university because of this but I mean looking forward the university is very positive about social distancing measures and students coming back in September there has been a bit of fun in regards to university mishap I was in a zoom call in which myself and the other person had a third person which neither of us knew but we each thought the other person knew them but was it my my week has mostly been filled with awkwardness and fires but i do believe yours has been filled with lots of fun news about doctor who and christopher eccleston one of your favourite topics. Well, Felicity, uh, anybody that knows me, they just have knows the two things, the three things I like to talk about. Disability, quantum leap, and Doctor Who. And You're not was, wrong. <laughs> this was a big week for Doctor Who. Um, the only thing was that they just 
I guess by dating you, just as we dropped last week's episode, so I couldn't talk about them. But I was just on Twitter and I stumbled across the Big Funnish Twitter feed. I don't know if you're familiar with Big Funny. I'm sort of familiar, but I think I'm more familiar through you because I see all your retweets and, and shares on Facebook. So I'm living vicariously my Doctor Who life through you. Well, people that aren't familiar, uh, Big Funny is a, uh, one of the licenses, and actually the most popular one is Doctor Who. It was actually the first license that they got off them. And what they've done is they brought back old doctors from the classic Doctor Who series. Brave New Life, and some popular doctors in Doctor Who history is actually... Paul McGann. And you might look at me plus and go, but she's only ever in one TV movie, an eight-minute mini-episode. How is he one of the most popular ones, or one of the most revered ones? And that's actually all through the audiobook, too big for me, because they were able to play their deep character and uh, create new life and give them brand new stories and companions. In fact, one of the sneaky things that Stephen Moffat did as part of the 50-year anniversary of Doctor Who seven years ago was they dropped a little line into Paul McGann mini-episode, which made all the audio dramas within Big Funny for Doctor Who canon, which was really exciting. Recently, what they've done, they brought licenses to so be able to bring back old Doctors from New Doctor Who and being the War Doctor in the Time War. But one of the people we saw we would never get was Christopher Eccleston, because people with Doctor Who will be familiar. Christopher Eccleston and Doctor Who BBC had a big falling out during the production of his first series, and that ended up not only being his first series, but being his only series. It's only in recent interviews over the last number of years where he started talking about Doctor Who again. If you know, he loved the series, he just had a lot of issues with the BBC Wales, you know, it's called BBC Studios now, particularly the Doctor Who department, you know, and that's why he never returned, or he never showed to the interest. But he was actually been able to talk them to going to a Doctor Who convention in America in February called Gallifrey One. Christopher Eccleston was over there and he got chatting to one of the uh, CEOs of Big Furnish and said, would you be interested? After 15 years, Christopher Eccleston is returning as the Doctor in March 2021. 12 new. I love a good audiobook. I, I can't wait to see what you're going to say up on Facebook when this comes out and how this will expand the universe. Because I, I, I know how excited you are now, but I, you know, you'll be like a kid at Christmas when they actually come out. Um, and 12 episodes, that's a lot. That's nearly, well, that's like half a season of an actual TV series. That's well, a lot. Well, in fact, uh, Christopher and his Doctor Who run 13 episodes on TV, and now he's going to do 12 episodes on audiobook, so they probably end up getting another contract to do another maybe four to five or six or even more. So he could actually be in the same way as Paul McGann. But I must tell you a very funny story. My story was uh, Christopher Eccleston. Several years ago, I was up in Belfast with a friend, and we went to see a play, and I got up the next morning, and my friend went downstairs to get a breakfast, and I said, so I'd like, so I was coming down the lift, and, and walked this man, and he had a big smile on his face, and I looked at him, and this man looks very familiar, and I looked at him, and I said, are you who I think you are? And he went, yes, I am. And I said, I can't believe I'm on the lift with uh, the former doctor, Christopher Eccleston, and his face sank, and I go, what's wrong? He said, I'm not Christopher Eccleston. And I said, well, who are you? He said, I'm the former Liverpool manager, Brenton Rogers. That's my Christopher Eccleston story. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think like the closest I would have is like I um I I accidentally bumped into Jamie Dornan in Belfast once, uh, but it was one of those split second things where like I think he was like trying to go somewhere like sort of incognito, 
and he smashed into me in my coffee. Um, I was very apologetic, but was in a rush and I never got another coffee. Well, if I ever see him again, he probably doesn't even remember, but I want a coffee. I want my coffee back. Well, if I was you, I would demand it. Well, it sounds like we both had uh, eventful weeks. Happy New Year too. But uh, just before we head off now, um, maybe we just have a wee review of what we spoke about tonight. Yeah, so I think um, some of the key takeaways from tonight, um, from my perspective, would be that if people are looking more information about the disability price tag report, that they can find it on the SCOPE website. So SCOPE is a charitable organisation for disabled people. And they also provide other services and it would definitely definitely be worth having a look at it's a very beautifully laid out report as well so visually it's great so it's very accessible I find from that perspective it's not very daunting when you go to have a look at it Um, but I, I think that would be one of the main things that people get informed, get educated, and then maybe consider how they can take that forward to bring about change. Definitely, and just to follow up on that, uh, what I'd like people to take away is, um, you know, when they go back out onto the streets again, back into the shops, uh, maybe having a pint of beer in the street or having a sandwich out in the in parking, disabled parking bay, it just, just think for a few moments, like, who am I obstruction? Or who am I caught in difficulty around me? You know, because it could be a person coming along in a wheelchair or a person that can't just see quite as well if you or I going to be having difficulties because of the tables and seats and something that we're all very familiar with, so signage on footpaths on the road. It's just so whenever you're going to put these tables out, just take one or two months and think, who am I restricting by allowing somebody else comfort? Yeah, it only takes two seconds. Just if that's all people take away is just that they have a moment to think that's definitely a start on the road to making their business and their lives generally much more accessible for other disabled people. Well, we've come now to the end of the podcast, so I just wanted to thank everybody for listening. Um, if you've any sort of comments on what we spoke about today, just drop it a wee line on either Facebook or Twitter. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter at My Way Access. And Felicity, if people want to contact you, where are you? So, um... I'm at atconfab on uh, Twitter, but you can find Chronically Fabulous on Facebook as well. But you can also find me personally at McKee underscore Felicity on Twitter if you just want to send links my way or feedback on the podcast or generally just for a wee chit chat about all things disability or even geek related. I do like a good conversation. Send a geek conversation my way too especially if it involves Doctor Who or Quantum Leap. So, uh, as I say, um, if there's anything you want to discuss either next week or in the following week, you know, get involved in the conversation with either Felicity and I. Uh, we, we will get that conversation started and onto the podcast. So, until next week, uh, good luck for me. And I will stay safe and look after yourself. Thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Well, was it stay safe, stay socially distanced, and we'll see you next week.